a guy stepped out into the road with a semi-automatic handgun and he's like, give me whatever you have. And he starts going, oh, are we run the place? You know, are we run the place? I said, well, actually the place is God's and he runs the place. And he looks at me straight in the eye and he says, um, God can save your life? Yes, yes he can. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Inspired, for those of you who are new to us, is all about amidst all the rubbish news that we're being bombarded with, is, is, is highlighting friends of mine from uh, different walks of life over the years, how they've lived and, and hung on in there and seen God at work and how yeah, God is at work throughout the world in, in different careers, different lines of work. So I'm really excited this week because we've got with us David Campbell, MBE, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. Hey, it's yeah. great, great to have you. So El, El, our mutual friend, Elmer Spearing, put us in touch and I, we, we chatted a few times and I, I, we got loads in common in, in common in terms of uh, going to a dangerous part of the world, in terms of mm. well, we're both married to Elizabeth's, your Liz, my Lizzie, uh, yeah. the, M, the MBE stuff, uh, lots of great stories of God breaking in, in, in tough circumstances. And uh, you went to Canford after being expelled from Marlborough. Those are schools I'm familiar, yeah. I've gone and preached. <laughs> At and, uh, and we played <laughs> against. So look, there's loads to get into um, before, even before you ended up uh, with Fusion and founding Fusion Jamaica with Liz. So t- tell us about your childhood. Go for it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Dorset. Um, my parents were were farmers, so I grew up sort of in the middle of nowhere. And um, and, and yeah, it was you know a hardworking mum and dad. Um, very sort of stalwart British parents, and uh, and church was only ever sort of Christmas, Easter, the occasional christening or wedding or funeral, um, and and that sort of was that really. Went off to uh, to boarding school, um, particularly because we were in the middle of nowhere. I started boarding school when I was seven, and um, that was sort of the the way. Yeah. Um, uh, boarding school. I mean, there was tons of great experiences. Um, you know, learning to sail and all those sorts of cool things that go outside the regular school experiences. But um, I also, I ended up in a year group, which wasn't the most mature. Um, in fact, we were one of the only years who never, we didn't even have a head boy in our year because um, they didn't think anyone was responsible enough. Wow. And for me, being the country farmer's kid in that sort of social setting, I end up getting the rough end of the stick. So I got some pretty brutal bullying. Um, mm. And it was a small school, so you couldn't really get away. So, um, yeah, that, that, that led to some of the tougher experiences where they, they, you know, a group of mates set up a, a club called DTC, which stood for Death to Campbell. Oh, no. And, and their sport was basically making me um, get so frustrated that I would lose my temper. And, uh, and then they beat me up for it. <laughs> so, oh, so, um, so, yeah, that, that was pretty isolated <sighs> and lonely times. Um, mm. And, and uh, yeah, it led to me... You know, uh, there were sort of three separate occasions, sort of 10 and 12. And then again at a new school when I was 14, when I, when I was seriously considering suicide. Um, you know, thankfully didn't go through with it. And I, I knew I had parents who loved me. So that's that was really the the redemption that I couldn't, mm. couldn't bring myself to. But it was, yeah, those were some pretty isolated and painful moments in childhood. And you were getting, I'm sure, having come from a similar background of prep school and, and, and public school, you were getting served a constant dish of school chapel, which is morality, but definitely not Christianity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there was definitely the, um, 
you know, I would go along and I, I remember things like, the, you know, the prayer of St. Francis, listening to that and thinking, yeah, wow, what a great, great thing to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I remember the teachers reading it and thinking, yeah, that ain't what they aspire to. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so there was a, an inconsistency and just, I think, a, an emptiness. Um, it didn't, church certainly didn't seem like a vibrant place. It was a place we didn't want to go, um, would avoid it, you know, at any cost we possibly could. And so you ended up trying to just fit in, did you? Yeah, so partic- particularly after the the when I sort of moved to Marlborough um, and then I was, you know, I did okay the last year of prep school, the first year of Marlborough, the bullying sort of started again and it just, I realised, you know what, I've, I've just got to fit in. The only thing I can do is um, if I can't change the rules of the game, I'll just play by the rules that are set for me. And, and so I basically started being pretty brutal to others. And particularly there was a couple of younger lads who were, yeah, I just, I had quite a quick wit. So I would be very brutal to them. And then when everybody laughed at them, they would laugh. You know, I, I would be the centre of the the um, the meanness and the laugh and the humour. And that made me friends. Yeah. So I, I started fitting in that way. And it was a, it was a weird thing because I remember knowing that something was dying on the inside. Yeah. But uh, I, the price of acceptance at that stage, I was willing to pay for the sake of, um, you know, for the sake of fitting in. Hmm. You know, as you say that, I, I can remember one boy and um, likewise, I just, I could wind him up and, and bully him so easily. And I, I wrote to him years later and he, he changed his name and he'd become a follower of Jesus. And anyway, I never, <laughs> got, never got a reply from him, but I, I, I felt such long-standing shame at how I treated mm. that guy. Yeah. Uh, we've all got it in us, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, so things got darker, didn't they? Yeah. So, um, well, a couple of things then happened at school. So one was um, when I was at Marlborough, some friends introduced me to this whole idea of Ouija board. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, a fascination thing at that stage. Um, didn't Didn't get too seriously into it, but I remember just seeing things that I could not explain. Um, you know, glasses moving around the board and eat, you know, sometimes with people touching, but then sometimes without people even touching it. Yeah, so that was sort of something, it was just a one-off experiment, I think, you know, maybe two or three times, it was just sort of a phase that people went through. But uh, then I met with a good friend who, I, I think because of my experiences of being bullied, I sort of gravitated to those people who didn't fit as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and one of the lads there, he, he got into what was called night walking, where he'd get up in the middle of the night and go around the school grounds and sort of explore a bit. Yeah, so with him, we went to um, we found our way through the disused air raid shelters under the school wow. and and found our way to the to the master's common room where they had a bar right. so we so the first time we just sort of stole a couple of bottles of wine and a few cans of cider or something like that <laughs> um and then we and then we found our way back and and he actually then was on an internal suspension so he was in trouble and didn't want to go with me again so then i asked another mate who said he was willing and, and we went and we cleared out the entire <laughs> the entire alcoholic supply from the teachers um and then sold it to our friends which because i was a farmer's kid i didn't have money like a lot of the yeah. rest of my mates and yeah. so suddenly i had a lot of money and was you know had a little bit business, but then three weeks later, one of my friends got caught um, drinking the alcohol, and it was sort of ID tagged or something. Oh, no. So then he he threw us under the bus to save himself. Oh dear! And um, and that's how I got kicked out of Marlborough. 
Uh, so, hey, listen, just let me tell you a story on that one because I, um, <laughs> Harrow, uh, we, you know, we're in a boarding house and I can tell a story because I've, I've apologized and sought forgiveness from him. But my housemaster is a lovely Christian and Mark Greenstock. Uh, shout out to you, Mark, if you're listening. But I, um, and this, I suppose sharing these stories just shows that we've all screwed up, isn't it? Um, I, um, <laughs> I just crept into, he, he lived with us 72 boys and his his side of the house wasn't it was just a door it wasn't locked so I, I just for the thrill of it i crept into his kitchen several times during the night and just sat down with him sleeping upstairs and just ate <laughs> cheese from his fridge purely <laughs> for the guy jinx kick of it and uh, as i said he actually retired to sherbourne one of the other schools he used to play against and he's got me down to preach there and i sat down and said look mark Will you forgive me? I thought I spilled the beans. Anyway, that's a complete. Uh, back back to you, but yeah. Oh Lord, have mercy on each of us. So um, you you got you got expelled, which is 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 messy, disruptive. But you, your parents yeah. got you got you into into camp in another good school. Yeah. So that was. I mean, that was a big shock for my parents, and I remember. Yeah, my, my, I was I was terrified actually of ringing my parents, but. Um, you know, my dad was amazing. He's he's amazing in a crisis, mm-hmm. and um, and really sort of you know helped. And so then I started at Canford, and that was again challenging. I was you know prepping for GCSEs and suddenly changing schools and you know new friendship groups, and so I started trying to again fit in. And I remember saying to myself, I'm I'm going to do well. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be a much more you know, diligent student and all the rest of it. And I turned up, and within two weeks, I was just getting drunk with my friends and not taking school seriously and just sort of trying to fit in really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the things, I, because I had this experience of Ouija boards, we got to talking about it at one point and, and none of them had ever done it. And so I sort of became the guy who introduced Ouija boards to the school. Right. And, it, and it sort of caught on a bit more there and people were, were more fascinated by it. Um, and what, can, uh, you just, can you just share briefly what it is? So, I mean, for, for us, we just had a, a big sheet of paper. I mean, it's basically a board or something that you have, but there's symbols all around it, letters and things, so so that this, and then an upturned glass, um, and you initially you start by sort of touching it, and, and I mean, you think essentially you're talking, uh, wh- what we thought we were doing was talking to somebody who was dead. I can't remember how you summon it, but there's some sort of process of, you know, asking this thing to come along, and then, the, and then, it, and then you sort of basically ask it questions, and it answers by spelling out the answer. Um, spelling the letters, but but I think in in retrospect, as we look back on that, it it was clearly there was there were, was a very spiritual element to that. Um, you know, I think it, you know probably being controlled by demons. But we were asking all these questions, and particularly things about religion and life and God, and you know all the unanswered questions that teenagers have. Mm-hmm. And um, one of whatever was speaking through it talked about having killed lots of people. And we said, you know, why? And it and it spelled out F U N, and that was, you know, fun. We were, I remember, looking at one another and the ha- hairs standing up on the back of your head and feeling really freaked out by it. And then, without any of us touching it, the glass returned on its own. To you know, it left the end, went back to the end, and then moved over to Y to finish funny. Wow. And and we, I remember, just being absolutely petrified. You know, we were there just thinking, what, what sort of, you know, it 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 wasn't just what was happening physically, but the, the, there was an evil tone to everything, whatever yeah. this was, was saying. And yeah, that sort of, I mean, for me, that's what then led me to sitting up at night, um, you know, I can't remember how many days later, 
there was a thunderstorm and I just was, you know, my, my perception of how the world was and how it fitted together had been really shaken. Mm. Um, and just thinking of, um, I had a, a, a RE, an RE teacher who'd encouraged me to um, learn all the miracles and all the parables of Jesus because he recognized for common entrance it always asked you to describe one of them. Mm-hmm. So one of the miracles, one of the parables. So he said, if you know all of them, then you can just be ready for the, so for my, for the, just for the purposes of passing the exam, I'd learned them all. And I remember thinking back on those stories and thinking, maybe it's not just a fanciful tale. Maybe, maybe this Jesus guy is actually real. And maybe he did do all that stuff they, that, that the Bible talked about. So I just got up in the middle of the night and started reading and it was it had been thunder and lightning storm and, and it was sort of just this this feeling I remember of initially of fear and terror and everything being so uncertain and then getting up and reading and just thinking, Wow, this guy is it. You know, he's he I I'm just I've never heard a voice like his. I've never seen a life like his anywhere. Mm-hmm. And um and just this incredible sense that um Here's me been searching, been trying to fit in with my mates and, and it's not working and I know it's not me. Um, and here's someone who's saying I can, you know, that life is different and that you can live a, a whole different way. And not only he's not talking about it, he's doing it. And what he's doing could not be done if he wasn't, you know, the real deal. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's what I basically decided that night. I said, okay, I'm going to become a Christian. I haven't got a clue how that happens, but I'm, I'm convinced that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. But then I was looking at life and particularly, you know, I was in a, let's say a boarding school, you know, on track to get to a good university, to get a good job and all the rest of it. And just thought, gosh, how, how can that fit with this guy's teaching? So yeah, I started hatching a plan just to get away and get some space and, and do something different with my life and didn't really know how, but started thinking it through. So that was sort of all, yeah or processing that. Mm. Um, Can I just ask back on the, I remember you saying to me uh, last time we spoke on the Ouija board mm. at one stage, wasn't there, th- I mean, three big rugby playing lads? And, yeah. And go on, tell that bit, because I, I just, you know, Ouija, it's it's quite mainstream in that you can buy sets so easily, and that's what's frightening in our culture, isn't it? People don't want don't want to turn to Jesus, but there's so much witchcraft that is just out there for everyone. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that one was, um, so in one of the boarding houses, there were three of my mates. I mean, I was the smallest and the skinniest and the other the other guys were all on the rugby team, you know, um, second row and a flanker and a and a guy who was a prop. So they were big boys and um, they were all six foot, you know, six foot or, or above. And there was one moment where, because this particular sort of evil one, it, it didn't want to stop the session. It, it We kept saying, okay, now it's time to stop. And it didn't want to stop. And so we sort of, we, we, we asked it to go back to, there's a symbol on the board where they're sort of supposed to return and the session is over mm. and you're supposed to count to three and it's done, but it was sort of one, two and it moved. And we started looking around at each other and laughing and said, Hey guys, who's, who's mucking around? Who's making it? And, and they would, everyone was saying, no, it's not me. It's not me. So then we sort of said, okay, well, let's just hold it down. One, two, and it moved us. And, and then we literally just put all of our weight, like all three, all four of us then. So these three big lads and me were all there holding as tight as we possibly could. And one, two. And then when we said, before we said three, this glass physically moved the four of us. Nuts. And, um, and that was, yeah, that was part of the, just realizing there's a power there that's beyond anything. And I think that's why, 
you know, that night I was so freaked out because I was just seeing things that didn't make any sense. Mm. So what would you, I mean, just some people might have kids involved in it. What would be your advice on that one? Uh, for me, what, what attracted me to it was the fascination. Um, and I think, uh, obviously, you know, listening to kids, talking to kids, you know, asking them what's going on. Um, I, you know, I'm a great believer that, that the people who listen to our children have influence over them. Yeah. So, so I would stop by listening, but I would not encourage at all because um, whilst it's fascinating, it's very sinister. And, and, and in fact, if you listen, they'll tell you that already. They'll know that. Um, I think the funny thing was for us, we, me and one of my mates then went to go and see the school chaplain and we we told him what had happened but we wanted to you know we wanted to know about jesus like we knew nothing about jesus and we mm. really wanted to know about him and all the chaplain told us about was ouija boards and the dangers of ouija and we didn't want to know about it. we knew that like yeah. <laughs> we, you didn't need to tell us that this thing was profoundly sinister because we'd experienced it we wanted to know about jesus mm. and and i think that would be a i'd caution against um freaking out too much if you know what I mean I, I would be appropriately concerned but listen to kids and 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 find a way to lead them to you know towards the real source of power yeah um because um that's what we needed at that time and that yeah that's what I then was went searching for mm. right I mean it's it's really good that you're sharing that stuff I think that's really useful for us now, I often tell the story of a guy called Fen Chapman. You've probably never heard of him. He was 16 years old. He was at another school on our, on our network called Rugby. Mm. And uh, this is going back a few decades. And during turn time, he he nicked a few of his mates' uh, music, you know, CD systems, whatever, and he flogged them. And he went to East Midlands Airport and flew to the Bahamas. And, uh, you know, this made a national story and people, the journalists obviously knew, you know, this would be good to track him down and, and get, get a good scoop on it. And eventually, you know, where the heck is he, this Fen Chapman teenager? They, one journalist did track him down to the beach, supping his pina colada or whatever. And uh, they asked him, so Fen Chapman, 16 years old of, of rugby school, why did you do it? And his, his answer was priceless. He said, I started thinking about the rest of my life after school, going to university, getting a job. 2.4 kids, marriage, uh, car, you know, career, and then retirement and death. And he, he, th he, he thought to himself, there's got to be more to life than this. I had to get away for a while to think things through. And uh, I, lo I love that reply. And uh, funny enough, I tracked him down uh, more recently because I've often quoted that and he just got out of jail uh, for, for, for further misdemeanor. So he, has, he hasn't made great choice in his life. But wow. I, I'm, am I right that you... You you fled school during term time to somewhere quite exotic. You are, yes, I did. So go on, yeah. tell us that story. Yeah, so yeah, if it yeah, it wasn't hard enough, you know, for my folks for me to get expelled, I then I then ran away. So um so in this quest then to work out about Jesus, I I you know, it's like, yeah, I have to follow him. I have to this has to be real, but I just can't see how it can work within the system that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And um a guy actually came to the school and spoke, and I, I don't even remember his name. Um, and the only interactions I had with him were in a, you know, a whole school assembly. So at Camper, there was about 500 odd students, and then in a combined RE class with 60, and he just shared a bit of his story. But he had given up um, a, a place in a private doctor's practice in London to go as a missionary doctor to Afghanistan. 
and he was with the God Squad, I think it was. And as I was listening to his story, you know, he had his shirt tucked into his jeans. He, he, he was slightly boarding on top. He was not cool in any way, but what he had was what I wanted. And, and I'd already decided to follow Jesus. And I was like, yeah, that, that's what I want. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it sort of confirmed, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get away. I'm, I'm going to go. And I remember chatting with a mate once, you know, this is, I, st- I was still going out and getting drunk. I was still partying and doing all the same old stuff. And about 2.30 in the morning on a Saturday night, you know, when you just started to sober up, lying on the floor of one of my mate's, you know, bed sits, I just suddenly said, mate, I'm going to go. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm just going to get away. I'm going to leave this and I'm going to go in search of something different. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to. And we just sort of chatted about it. And he says, well, how are you going to do it? And I said, oh, I've been saving some money. You know, the plan was to buy a car, been working some summer jobs and had a bit of inheritance from, you know, a grandparent that died and things like that. So I've got it. So, you know, I've got this savings. I'm going to close the account and I'm just going to go. And uh, anyway, and he was just like, oh, yeah, that'd be so cool. And then he said, well, how much have you got saved up? And I, I sort of told him and he goes, oh, wow, you won't need that much. Give us a grand. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> Anyway, next morning, I've got a nursing a headache um, and a hangover, and, and he turns up with a big grin. He says, oh, do you remember what you promised me last night? I was like, what? He says, you said you'd give me a grand. <laughs> and, and I laughed, and, and we both laughed. Anyway, a year later, when I finally decided I was going to go, I went to the, you know, it was a post office account, closed the account, took the money, went back to school. I just, sort of just took a taxi, went off, did that, came back to pack my one bag and pick up my guitar. And then I was going to go to the airport and fly to Jamaica. And so I went to see him and I just suddenly said, oh, mate, do you remember what I said? And he's like, what? I said, do you remember that promise I made you? And he goes, yeah. And then I handed him an envelope and he, and he looks in the envelope and there's a thousand pounds. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I'm going right now. See ya. <laughs> And, and we made this pact that um, I wouldn't tell him where I was going so that if, if the school found out, he wouldn't know to, uh, to tell. So, we, so I said, OK, I'll, t- I'll tell you when I get there. And, um, and then went and caught another taxi to the train, took the train to, um, to the airport. And this was crazy. I and mean, I had one bag on my back and I turned up at the British Airways desk and said to the lady, um, can I buy a one-way ticket to Jamaica? And she was like, she was this sort of, you know, Cockney, Cockney accent lady. She said, oh, certainly, sir. Um, uh, how are you be paying? I said, oh, I'm paying in cash. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, this lady sold a one-way ticket to Jamaica to a 17-year-old who was paying in cash. I mean, I had in my mind that the police were going to suddenly come out of somewhere and drag me away and ask what on earth I was doing. But no, she told she she was there. And then funny enough, actually, as she was sort of selling the ticket, she sort of said, oh, we haven't got any flights today, sir. They're, they're all tomorrow and they're from Gatwick, I'm afraid. And I was like, oh, that's okay. And she was like, oh, all right then. <laughs> and, um, and so I bought the ticket and, and, then, and then I said, oh, how do I get to Gatwick? And she's, oh, the bus stop's over there. <laughs> and so, so, so I went, then went from Heathrow to Gatwick and um, had made a one-way ticket to Jamaica. And I found a, a chapel at Gatwick Airport. There was a little quiet spot in all the bustle and busyness of an airport and went to this chapel and that's where I just knew, okay, now it's time to pray for the first time. And so I, I, 
went to this little chapel and found a little spot and got on my knees and just said, um, oh God, look, I don't even really know if you're real. Um, some people say you are, and I seriously hope you are right now because, um, because I'm, giving my, I'm giving my life to you. I don't want to live it the way everyone's been telling me to anymore. I want to live it your way. And I think that bloke who came to school said something about if you give your life to Jesus, he'll come and live in your heart. So if you could do that right now, that would be really, really cool. Thanks. Brilliant. Mate, I love, love this. <laughs> you don't write the script. Your poor parents. I just, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it was real. I mean, it was really real. Did you feel God's presence then? Yeah, it was, it was peace. That's the thing. All I could describe it as was just this sense of peace that I had never known in my life before. And wow. um, yeah, no amens, no religious jargon, just, yeah, just him. And a piece that it wasn't naughty what you're doing. It was like, go for it, boy. That's my boy. Yeah, yeah. It was just, <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the other thing is because then, you know, I, I spent the night sort of, you know, on some airport chairs and what have you and got up in the morning. And then I, and I, I ended up in the middle seat with two Jamaican ladies either side of me. So I was sort of squidged <laughs> in between. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they were sort of chatting away. And, and just when the, when the plane kicked in, and you know, okay, hang on a second. I'm now cutting off from every human being I've ever known. Just yeah. the same sense of peace was so, so overwhelming. I just felt exactly in the right place. And uh, yeah, completely beyond, beyond explanation. You know, it was uh, just a real sense of peace. Hmm. Yeah, and so that's where that began. So you had a year. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, let me go for it. Just tell us what yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I basically had, uh, when I'd actually turned up at Heathrow and gone to check in, they said, oh, um, you can't go without a return ticket. So I had to book a six month return um, or else they said they wouldn't give me the visa on arrival in Jamaica. Right. So it's much easier, obviously, for us to get to Jamaica than for Jamaicans to get to the UK. But um, yeah, so I, I then turned up at the airport in Jamaica and you know, went to immigration and they sort of said, oh, you need a, um, you need an address. So I, they said, tourist information's over there and you can book a hotel. So I went over and they said, oh, you can get a hotel for 50 US or a, or a guest house for 30. And so I said, oh, I'll take the guest house. Thank you. And all they needed was an address for two, two, the first two nights. So I booked into a guest house and the lady was willing to come and pick me up from the airport. Um, but she sort of, you know, told me a little bit about Jamaica and, and where I was staying was nearer to sort of shopping complex. And also just down the road from there was the Bob Marley Museum. So as a first day sort of seeing Jamaica, I went down there, met this Rasta guy anyway at the Bob Marley Museum, and he comes into the story a little bit later. But when I was walking home, I walked past the shopping complex and I just heard this voice. It wasn't audible, but it was so clear. I knew it wasn't me. And it was um, going to that shopping center. So I was Okay, didn't have anything else to do, so I figured I might as well. So I, I went over there and went into the shopping center. And as I walked inside, it was like a two level thing. And I was up at the top and this other, I sort of looked down and there was this guy on these tables down in the food court. And he looked up at me and I looked up at, down at him and he just beckoned me to come. And so I sort of went down there and um, I you know, stood the other side of the table initially, a little bit defensive, but he sort of said, oh, hi, um, where are you from? And I said, well, that's a pretty good question. Um, how about you? And he sort of said, oh, well, I initially came from America, but I've been living here. Um, really felt that the Lord called me here to serve him. 
And mm. I sort of said, oh, really? I said, well, that's kind of why I'm here. <laughs> and he was a believer and and he, he knew the scriptures. And I, I'd started at Genesis 1. You know, I just opened the book at the beginning and started reading. And he was like, yeah, let's start by reading the Gospel of John together. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. And, and so he, he just discipled me and helped me orientate to scripture. And, you know, we, we prayed together. Um, he, I mean, he laid hands on me at one point and, and I received the gift of tongues. And it was just that sort of, that, that older believer that I really needed in my life to help me in the early, early stages, which, mm. you know, I came across him because he just walked into a shopping centre. Mm. Brilliant. Did you tell your parents at some stage? I did, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I planned to tell them very soon, but, um, but back in those days, the, the telecommunications in Jamaica wasn't great. So there was a company called Jamintel. And so, yeah, it took me five days to work out how to make a phone call. And in the end, I had to go to a place downtown and, you know, pay, pay a sum of money and stand in these sort of wooden booths with, um, with a bunch of people all in a line. And, you know, you got all these people on the phones next to you sort of, yes, when you send the money, you send it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, and and so it, there are all these loud noise all around you, and then I'm there, and I'm suddenly there's my, you know, I've, I've been basically, you know, I've been there five days, but because of the traveling time, it's a week since I left. Yeah. Yeah. So my parents have not heard a single thing they heard from the police that I'd left school. They had a letter from me that arrived saying, you know, I'm deciding to take my life in a different direction. But that's all they'd heard. And suddenly on this crackly line, the the phone picks up and it's my dad and um yeah it was a that was a phone call i would never forget because I, I i actually i'd already been um i'd been robbed a couple of times already by then uh once at knife point and um so i just i broke down in tears you know i was you know such a long way away from home and orientating so much and um he just said yeah look be strong be strong david he said, part of me wants to hop on a plane right now, grab you by the ear and take you back and pop you in school where you belong. And part of me says, well, look, you've made your bed now. You're going to have to sleep in it. Mm. And um, I'll be here for you when you decide <laughs> that you've had enough. And um, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Good man. Yeah. So presumably that, that guy helped you with accommodation and you, you spent a year growing your faith. Yeah, well, so, well, initially, actually, so that it was actually the Rasta guy who, who, who helped me find a, because I was staying at this guest house and he said, he said, no, man, much better deal than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so he hooked me up at this place called the Chelsea Hotel, which, um, <laughs> which is a really good place for the nightlife. And, um, you know, the first night I was sort of walking into my room and there was this Jamaican lady who was huge in, in, you know, it was, it was, um, mid nineties. So Lycra was in and she had like this, um, fluorescent yellow Lycra. And, uh, she sort of looked at me and she says, Hey, whitey, you like me? Oh dear. And, uh, and I remember sort of, you know, just fresh out of British public school. So I was like, I, I, I don't really know you to know if I like you or not. <laughs> and, um, and she kind of looks at me and says, you couldn't love me. And then blows me a kiss, and I suddenly realised what she was, you know, offering, mm. and uh, and I just, you know, ran to my room and locked the door. <laughs> just, I was so in out of my head. Um, mm. So anyway, so I was there for a couple of weeks, and then um, uh, my parents sort of basically started ringing all their friends. Does anyone know anyone in Jamaica? And actually found uh, a connection there who 
amazingly, she she then managed to get in touch with me, which, um, yeah, there was a, I'd met a British ex- expat who, um, who was helping me get to know some of the charities. And she rang him and said, oh, have you heard about this English guy who's turned up in Jamaica? And he's like, yeah, I'm standing right next to him. Wow, <laughs> amazing. So anyway, that all, long story short, that led to a connection she had to a Jamaican charity. And so I, I was able to work there for board and lodging. So that's where I lived and worked in, in an orphanage looking after disabled kids in the inner city. All right. Now, listen, we've only got you age 18 and we're sort of two thirds <laughs> way through our time. So um, you, 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 any key experience before you come back to England? I would say for that one, probably the, the key one. So when I was working with the kids, it was great. But then I started going out into the inner city communities in the afternoons and just doing homework assistance, homework clubs. And then we started building go-karts with these kids, you know, just using old bits of wood and you know, the, the good old hand carts that are famous in Jamaica. We sort of used, reused one of those. And just that experience of investing in these kids and seeing how much difference it made mm-hmm. when their families are so broken, that really, really got me. I was, I was like, wow, I could, I could do that. But then there was a, a, a couple who'd really been very hospitable to me. They helped me understand all the nuances. Um, you know, when I got robbed on the bus, they helped me to understand you know, not to take too much money and where to hide it and all these things. And I turned up to work. They, they had a little shop right outside where I was working at the orphanage. And I turned up to, to work one day and their shop was closed. And, I, and they were called Clive and Opie. And I, and I suddenly said to one of these guys on the street, I said, oh, where's Opie? She's dead. And I was like, what? He says, yeah, she's dead. Them kill her last night. And that was my first real experience of the the darker side of Jamaica, um, where this beautiful hospitable couple, um, she had a son who was 17, he got caught up in the gangs, in the in the gangs and in the crime. And he decided to run away from the gang and come home and the gang followed. And he was the same age as me. You know, he was 17, I was 17. And I just remember thinking, wow, somebody's got to do something about these kids. Mm. And um yeah, so that was that was the major experience I was left with on on coming back. Mm. So you came back to England for a brief period. Was it always the plan to go back to Jamaica? Yeah. So I mean, initially, obviously, I had to come back. You know, the, the, I could only get a visa for six months, uh, but I only came back very briefly then. So I sort of came back for Christmas and wasn't ready um, for the West. And 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 it was a it was a tough time with my parents because they really wanted me to you know, go back to school and finish my education. And I just wanted to go back to Jamaica. Mm. So yeah, I, I, I was stubborn and went. And, um, and so I spent another six months in Jamaica. But then when I came home, um, yeah, I, I ended up actually through a, a friend um, invited me to faith camp, which was sort of Colin Urquhart yeah. um, and those guys. And I, and I remember hearing Colin Urquhart teach and it was, the first in my life I'd heard somebody teach the Bible like they believed it was true. Right. And, and it was just amazing. And, and I, they had a, a sort of ministry training course. And I thought, yeah, it's about time I connected with something a bit bigger than, than just my own spiritual journey. And, um, and that was so healthy for me. You know, I went and did sort of eight weeks up in Yorkshire. And, and then and I met a guy who, who knew Jackie Pullinger and, and I spent a little bit of time with another friend in the Earl's Court project in London and these different places. So I sort of 
there was a worship evening and I remember saying to God, oh God, look, I, I love you enough. I, I go and work with the homeless in London. I go and work in China. I'll go and any, anywhere you want. I'll go back to Jamaica. You know, what do you want me to do? Anything. I love you enough. I'll do anything. And I had this real clear sense of God saying, okay, do you love me enough to go home and do the washing up? Hmm. And I was like, woof, that's a bit rich. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I figured, you know, if he died for me, it was probably not too much for him to ask. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I managed to get a job in youth work uh, near to my parents and, and rebuilt the relationship with them. Hmm. And, um, and they, they were hardworking farmers and always would eat very late, come in from the farm late at night and eat late and leave the washing up too early in the morning when they got up. And because I was in youth work, I would come home and I just served them by, you know, cleaning the place up every night before I went to bed. Mm. And um, I remember my mum just saying she couldn't believe it. She just, you know, that the teenage boy that she knew was not the teenage boy. He was now in her house. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, yeah. So restored relationship meant that you could be released back to go. Yeah. So that was, you know, a strong relationship. And then I, I just had a, a real, you know, a sense of... Um, of call to back to Jamaica. I, I remember watching a movie about basketball actually, and and some a guy who did a basketball project in the inner city um, for kids who who don't have any hope. And I just remember thinking, gosh, someone should do that for Jamaica. And then I woke up in the morning knowing who who it should be. Yeah. And so so that was the the moment where I decided to go back. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast So you head back to Jamaica, and how did you connect in with Trenchtown? Yeah, so that, um, I mean, I did a few trips. I did a recce trip initially and was asking people about Trenchtown. And um, a few people told me about this guy, Pastor Bobby. Oh, you got to hear Pastor Bobby. you got to get in touch with Pastor Bobby. And um, uh, again, it's sort of a set of coincidences that led me to connect with him. And um, so... He just was a guy who had a real heart for his community. Um, he firmly believed that Trenchtown belonged to Jesus <laughs> and and that Jesus reigned over Trenchtown. And he had a, a declaration he would, you know, declare over the community on a regular basis. But mm-hmm. his vision was a transformed community. And I was so struck by his love for his community and his seeing it through the eyes of of what it could be with the presence of of Jesus. Yeah, so so his vision was what really captivated me to you know to commit more of my time to Trenchtown, and um, yeah, so I, I started out and, and initially lots of praying. Um, uh, 
we, we, I actually crossed America on a bicycle. That's another whole long story I won't go into now, but as a fundraiser um, with my two sisters, we did a, took a three-person bicycle across America Brilliant. and then used the money to help sort of start work on a community center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then through that, I ended up with some of the Jamaicans going to a sports conference in Greece and they asked all the Jamaicans to go up on the stage and there was one white face. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was leaving the conference and an Aussie walks up to me in the airport line and says, you're the white bloke. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he says, so what's your story? And so we, I told him and then he told me some of his story and it was just an amazing story and we, we connected I shared the queue at, at the check-in line and then waiting for the plane and then sat next to each other on a flight. And in that period of time, I told him things about my life that probably three other human beings even knew. Like he was such a great listener. Mm. Um, ended up becoming best man at my wedding, a chap called Marty Woods. Mm-hmm. And he was part of a, an Australian mission organization called Fusion. And um, he basically, a few months later, invited me to go to a, a Fusion training course called Foundations. So I end up you know, I was in the UK for Christmas, and so I ended up flying to Australia, and then and, and in a in this sort of village in the middle of the Tasmanian Highlands, doing this amazing training course, and just talking about the the kingdom and the reality of the king. And um, one of the people who was training there was was called Liz, and she was on the training team. And um, actually, the first words I ever said to her because she she walked into the hallway. And the heel broke on her shoe as she walked in. <laughs> and uh, she just happened to be right next to me. And she sort of looked at her shoe and looked up and said, oh, my shoe just broke. <laughs> and um, when I was in England, I'd got a job working um, with a mate called Simon in his shoe repair shop. So that I, I got that's my trade. I know how to fix shoes. And so I looked down at the shoes and said, yeah, it's because they're cheap, cheap shoes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we turned it. And, and that was, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> She's still wearing cheap shoes on your budget. I, I'm, I'm, I, I do buy cheap shoes, but we, we, we are discerning about the cheap shoes I buy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you found your love mate and uh, she was game on for it as well. She was. She came to live in the middle of Trenchtown, um, we didn't have running water. We had we had high-speed internet, but no running water. And so I had to carry water every night to fill up the buckets and, and keep us going. And we started Fusion Jamaica together. And I know that's been full of um, incredible highs and life transformations and incredible lows. Let's get, before time runs out, give us give us some highs, first of all, some of the beautiful life, life, life stories. Um, yeah, gosh, I would say probably one of the highs um, I'll just pick a quote. There was a young lad called Jamar who was, you know, he, he'd grown up in Trenchtown, been to Pastor Bobby's church. And the, the dynamic fusion board, we, I was, remember working with young people through the basketball program, but you see them go back into the same crippling life situations. Yeah. You know, they're um, yeah, just in, in poverty and in, in it a violent poverty. And, you know, I remember seeing one lad who came along to the basketball program and these this gang just came and called him and he just leaves the basketball line and goes to join them. Hmm. And within two weeks, he's been shot. Thankfully, he survived. Hmm. But then when he was shot, everybody just wants him to be armed and to go and take it out on the people who shot him, you know, and it's just this cyclical thing that sucks young people in. And um, the dynamic fusion had was training young people to be missionaries to their own community. Um, 
and how they can, you know, you can train them up just real simple things like face painting and balloon sculpting and, and community building games and things like that and putting on these big community events where the young people are at the centre and they they are the heart of this um, sort of community event. And we started doing these, particularly in situations where there'd been gang violence mm-hmm. and seeing prolonged periods of peace because... It's like once once people see the community as it is, they don't want it to go back to it being what it was, um, or or as it can be. Once the kingdom is at the centre, you know, kingdom community is is resetting and reshaping that that same space. Um, we, had, we had a young lad called Patrick. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll get to Jamal's quote in a second, but Patrick came along and he was the MC at the festival, and he just spontaneously started this chant of like. Which part nice is like you know, so where's nice? And the the answer was yes or nice, which in other words, here is nice. You know, mm-hmm. here is a great place to be. And this is in, you know, a situation where four people have been murdered in the same streets in the week before the festival. Mm-hmm. And you're there with like police, you know, armed up to the hilt with these assault rifles. And the kids are playing and having a ball in the middle of the street and the young people you're discipling are the ones who are hosting it. Yeah. And they're just yelling, yes, or nice. And it's just this deck, you know, this this can be a good place. We, we, you know, we don't have to run away from the darkness. Mm. We can invade the darkness with the light and make it beautiful. And it was just this declaration of, yeah, yes, or nice. You know, this is a good place to be. Yeah. And so Jamar's quote of being part of that, that little mob of young people, the first set, he said, look, I've been in this community and I've been going to church my whole life and everybody's always praying for transformation. And to be honest, I hit my teenage years and I just thought, you know, it's never going to happen. Like, like God's never going to change a place like this. And now what's amazing is I'm seeing those prayers answered, but what I never anticipated was that he'd answer them through me. Yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant, isn't it? And that's that's one of the biggest highlights, seeing young people being part of the answer to God's dream for the community, mm. um, especially in situations where there's a lot of hopelessness. Yeah. Um, tough times? Yeah, tough times. Um, there's been quite a few. Um, you know, while it's true we can invade the darkness with the light, um, it would be naive to think it's going to give ground easily. And, and and it hasn't. Um, I was involved in a, a prayer and fasting push with a, a lot of the churches across Trenchtown. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I was running a peace, you know, football tournament in the community. And the tournament almost caused a gang war and the prayer and fasting, um, the things we were praying for didn't seem to have the breakthroughs, you know, in the short term that we were looking for. and. So, so not seeing progress on those really caused me to question what the point was in any of this right. and um, ended up really struggling with depression and that about a two year recovery period. Um, I mean, I had burnt out physically, mentally and emotionally and it took a long time to recover. Um, that taught me a lot about health and uh, then I got involved in a health food business, um, you know, as a way to, to use business and mission together. and. There's an expression that says, you know, beware the light at the end of the tunnel because it might be a freight train coming. And and that business was incredibly complicated, um, you know, trying to, yeah, uh, on many levels. Um, mm. Then many years later, you know, the, the mission organization that I was a part of, there was a time where 
there were some some really really painful broken relationships and um, and feelings of hurt and betrayal and uh, you know Lizzie had had grown up in the organisation her, her father was was actually the founder and so seeing though you know our family affected our mission organisation affected and our support network affected was was painful relationally it was also challenging financially because that was our support network so yeah. we did a budget not long after that time and um, our income was 15% of our monthly expenses um, and every month somehow God provided you know a mission team came and left a gift a visitor came someone just sent a gift randomly and so God was faithful through all of that time but um but there were there were years of just just barely hanging on and, and at the same time God was doing still doing amazing things in the community so you know in Isaiah 43 it talks about when you pass through the waters I will be with you um and we have we have seen that you know God has been with us um uh, but it's also important to pass through not to get stuck in those in those rough times so um yeah, there's there's been a few tough times. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, you, you've got recognition for what you've done in the secular space in terms of uh, getting an MBE. Like we were given an MBE for what's it called for services to development in Burundi, which is because mm. clearly we're not going to be given it for evangelism and you know the, the sort of more obviously yeah. Jesus focused stuff that we did. But but um, you know what what do you see as your contribution and and, and the beauty of it? Not, bl- not blowing your own trumpet, but, but um, mm. you know, how lives have been changed. What has been the sort of the special nature of it in Jamaica? That's a good question. The, there was a moment probably after we'd hung on through all the tough years that we realised we were trying to hang on to the ministry because our identity was invested in it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it sounds like a funny answer, but we actually realized we had to repent. You know, we, we'd made mission our idol, our God, um, rather than Jesus. And when we re- refocused, we sort of helped really put discipleship at the center of our work for our team. Suddenly things started happening in a way that was totally beyond our control. Um, and it was, I think, so uh, what I'm saying in all of that was helping those guys in those settings see that God is real and alive and with us and Jesus is present and that with him things are possible that are, that would not be possible any other way. That's been the lesson I've had to learn the tough way because um, there are times I I forgot he was present and focused on the waters, not on his presence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think that was such a key lesson for us that that's been so so much a part of what we've really tried to impart to others as well. Mm. And um, seeing you know seeing these guys step out in faith, saying yeah we're gonna we're gonna go into full time work, not even knowing how the, where the money's gonna come from, and seeing God catch them and provide for them through channels that we didn't organise, yeah. that's been the the beautiful thing in in what we're seeing now is seeing these guys step up and and take hold of the ministry in ways that we yeah it's just beyond our control and beyond theirs. Brilliant. I'm sure you had times like I did in Burundi where I woke up, you know, let's say a, a guy's come up come to my house with a grenade to blow me up and think, well, how did I get into this situation? Give, you, give us your top sort of nuts, trench town experience. Um, that would probably be the day when I got held up at gunpoint on Liz's birthday. Right. So um, we were just on a, 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 you know, a, 
an experience where we, you know, we were a training night and, I, and it's late at night and the bus system isn't safe. So I dropped the guys home. And so I drove into Community Majesty Garden and dropped the guys off and then turned around to leave. And uh, a guy stepped out into the road with a, a Tech 9, which is a sort of um, semi-automatic handgun. And, um, you know, said, stop. <laughs> so I figured I probably better shoot. And, um, and, uh, and then another guy comes out the shadows on the other side and another guy, you know, so I'm surrounded by these three guys. Um, and he's like, you know, give me, give me whatever you have. And, and I literally had no money. I mean, I had, you know, less than the price of a loaf of bread. And, um, I just sort of said, like, I really haven't got anything worth anything. And he starts going, oh, are we on the place? You know, are we on the place? And I, and I kind of, this, this situation is like, you know, what? I have to testify to this guy in this situation. So I, I said, well, actually the place is God's and he runs the place. Um, it, it belongs to Jesus. And he looks at me straight in the eye and he says, um, God can save your life. And I remember just, you could see this darkness in his eyes and, and just this, this, this surge of God's spirit in me, giving me strength beyond my own to look him right in the eye and say, yes, yes, he can. And there was absolute bewilderment in his eyes. Like he did not know what to think or mm -hmm. say or how to respond. And as I said, yes, a car turns the corner just up the road and starts to drive down towards us. And then his mate is like, says to him, you'll squeeze it now, squeeze it. And you can see he's just confused. Like, what, what does he do? Does he, does he point the gun at me? Does he point it at the car that's coming down the road? And the car keeps coming closer. And so in the end, he steps out and points the gun at the car coming towards us. But the car has left just enough space for me to drive with the bus. And so I just really slowly, you know, just felt such a peace of God. You know, I just, it, and again, it's not me. It's not my braveness. It was just God's spirit there. Just, just put it in gear and just drive away. And so I did. And he could so easily have shot me if he wanted to, but, um, but he didn't. So anyway, I get to the end of the road and I leave and I, and I realize I'm now safe, but my heart is just yeah. beating like an absolute, you know, crazy thing. Yeah. And we're driving and I'm driving back home and all I can think is it's Liz's birthday. It's Liz's birthday. <laughs> I can't ruin it. I can't, you know, and so I just said, Jesus, be with me, give me the strength. And so I just turned up and was just present with her and just celebrating and didn't say a thing. Mm. Um, but the following morning over breakfast, I just said, um, oh, by the way, last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, David, um, I think we're just going to stop there because it's, it's a cracking way to stop. And it just leaves you guys listening. There's so much more to hear on, uh, on, on David and, and Liz's life. And so how can they find out more? I feel like we could do another two of these and pack in loads of <laughs> stories. So where can they be in touch with you? Uh, what's the website? Yeah. Give those details. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, very welcome to email me, um, david.campbell at fusionjamaica.org. Um, all one word. And the website is um, fusionjamaica.org. So that makes it easy. Um, and there's some some good stories on the website and a few videos and things like that. Um, but yeah, people are welcome to to get in touch. Maybe, maybe in closing, um, also David, you'd be up for speaking, wouldn't you? I mean, there'll be there'll be churches, there'll be all sorts of different contexts, schools uh, that would love to hear your story. Would you be up for that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very willing to share the story. Yeah. All right. So guys, be in touch with with David on that level. 
Oh, mate, we, I, I resonate with you on so many levels. I mean, obviously, we've got very different journeys, but we face so much similar stuff and uh, cheering you on all the way now. As you, I mean, similarly, you felt led to come back like we did and you've released it to a new generation of leaders like we did. And it's just, uh, yeah, watch this space for what God does with the Campbells in the UK now. We cheer you on. I'm sure everyone <laughs> listening would be saying cheering you on and the kids, they suck in well at school. Yeah, that's that's Zoe's 15, Ollie's 13. Pray for those guys. Yeah. yeah. And uh, listen, folks, if you've been inspired, I, I totally have. You know, some of these some of these uh, podcasts are, are more sort of wow, that's interesting, and others are just plain inspiring. This one's definitely one of the latter. And uh, I'd love you if you were inspired to pass this to pass it on. I mean, the Ouija stuff could touch certain people. I mean, stories just can can meet people in different ways can't they and so please gossip this podcast with other people please give us a great review on spotify itunes please subscribe get other people to subscribe and give us a if you want to be in touch with me uh simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms and yeah have a great week um mate thanks so much for your time oh thank you yeah thanks, and uh, yeah god's blessing on your ministry and family Guys, we'll see you next week with another fantastic guest. In the meantime, God bless you loads and toodaloo.